Thank you for tuning in this morning to the worship broadcast of Bowglade Alliance Church. Bowglade Alliance Church is located at 425 East Canal Street North in Bowglade uh, with live worship services every Sunday at 11 a.m. For more information, visit us online at www.bowgladealliance.org. Now let's join Pastor Kevin for this morning's message. Now this may not be something that you have ever actively reflected on, but Jesus invites us to participate in his life. What do I mean by that? Perhaps an illustration is in order. Now this past week, the Rams and Bengals apparel began to make appearances because the Super Bowl, of course, is closing in. And so two days ago, I remember walking past a young man who was wearing a Matthew Stafford jersey. And it dawned on me in this moment that this man doesn't know Matthew Stafford. He probably never met him. I doubt this young man will be going to the Super Bowl to watch the Rams quarterback play in person. In fact, like the vast majority of those who are going to watch the Super Bowl, he'll likely be doing it from someone's sofa, watching it on television. Win or lose, Matthew Stafford doesn't know this man. And this man won't really understand Matthew Stafford's triumph or his defeat. He certainly won't participate in it in any real way. He's a casual observer, disconnected from the person, the life, the challenges, the pains, and even the joys of Matthew Stafford. Now, that's not to demean those who are watching the Super Bowl or those who support a particular team or player or even those who wear somebody's jersey. It's just the sober reality of what it is to be an observer. But Jesus doesn't call us, his church, to be observers. He calls us to be participants. Consider Jesus' own words on the matter. This is from John 14, verse 12. He says, Very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. And so Christians are not called to merely celebrate Jesus for the things that he did, but Christians are called to do the very same things that Jesus spent his earthly ministry doing. Even the greater things that Christians are called to do are those things that are in the same vein as the things that Jesus did while he was on the earth. And actually, when we consider the preceding verses, Jesus did the things that he did because of his participation with the Father. And subsequently, we're called to do the things that Jesus did because of our participation with him. We also see that as we engage in the things that Jesus was doing, he continues to be present with us in the midst of the task. Consider the Great Commission passage from Matthew 28, 18 through 20. It says, Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. It's not about merely celebrating what Jesus did, although celebrating what Jesus did is important. It's also not about going out and doing something like Jesus, but apart from him. It's about participating with Jesus in the current work that he has called us to. 
But our participation with Jesus is more than just those things that we do. It's more than just the victories and the high points. In fact, there's a very real way in which we also participate in Jesus' sufferings. Consider passages such as Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 11. Paul's writing, he says, But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. And so Paul associated his journey of knowing Christ with his participation in current sufferings for Christ. In fact, it seems the more deeply he suffered for Christ, the more he participated with Christ, aligning his perspective about what is most important. Before going to the cross, Jesus prepared his followers for the future reality of their suffering for him. And he does so in these words from John 15, verses 18 through 20. He says, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. So Christians are those who've been called out of the world to participate with Christ in the building of his kingdom. And as the world hated Jesus, so it will hate his followers who belong to him and are called by his name. You know, I've watched several Rams games this season, but I, I don't know Matthew Stafford. I do know Jesus. I'm known by him. I participate in his life, and he, he lives his life in me. And this is true for all believers. This is what he calls us to. And as we'll see in our passage today from Acts 5, this was the experience of the earliest Christians as well. So if you have your Bibles with you, please turn with me to Acts chapter 5, and we will begin reading in verse 12 today. Acts 5, starting in verse 12. And the text says this. The apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people. And all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by impure spirits, and all of them were healed. We're going to pause here for a moment before continuing further in our passage for today. What do we see here? 
Do we see the apostles sitting around telling people what Jesus used to do before his death, resurrection, and ascension? No, of course not. While certainly part of the apostles' ministry was telling the people about Jesus, proclaiming the gospel, testifying about the resurrection, the apostles were also doing the things that Jesus had been doing during his earthly ministry. They were participating with Christ. So here's what we see. They performed signs and wonders, just as Jesus had done. People were being healed of various ailments, just as they were during Jesus' ministry. Demons were being cast out from people, just as Jesus was well known for. They were doing the things that Jesus himself had been doing, just as he had instructed them to do. And as a result of their faithfulness in participating with Jesus, the gospel was advancing and the kingdom of God was clearly making inroads in their midst. In fact, we see that at first people were afraid to join them. Why? For fear of the religious leaders. So whereas before people crowded around without worry, now the text says no one else dared to join them. Why? Because Peter and John had been arrested by the captain of the temple guard and imprisoned temporarily by their religious leaders. They'd been warned not to teach in Jesus' name any longer. So the threats against the Christians were known. And I would suggest that an anti-Christian rhetoric was probably being espoused by the religious leaders in light of all that had taken place. And yet none of these obstacles stopped, stalled, or even slowed down God's work. Despite these things, people saw what God was doing through the apostles, and so they risked the anger of the religious leaders because these men compellingly proclaimed the truth, performed signs and wonders, and they healed people. And the things that drew people to Jesus during his time on earth were now drawing others to Jesus through the apostles right here in the temple grounds in Jerusalem. But again, participation with Christ is not merely about those things that we do, but also in our participation with Christ's suffering. Now, let's be honest, that might not be something that we like to reflect on. It's certainly not the sort of thing that we uh, put on our church marketing material. But we would be foolish to dismiss it or to reject it or even to stand in denial of it. We've already seen that Jesus predicted it for his followers We've already seen how Paul counted it an honor in the, his letter to the Philippians. And now we're going to see the reality of the apostles' participation in Christ's suffering in our text today. And this merely the beginning of what we'll see. So picking up where we left off in Acts 5, starting in verse 17, it goes on to say this. Then the high priest and all his associates, who were members of the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people all about this new life. At daybreak, they entered the temple courts, as they had been told, and began to teach the people. When the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and sent to the jail for the apostles. But on arriving, but on arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them there. 
So they went back and reported, we found the jail securely locked with the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. On hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests were at a loss, wondering what this might lead to. Then someone came and said, look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. At that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. They did not use force because they feared the people would stone them. The apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior, that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. Then he addressed the Sanhedrin, Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Thutis appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, and all of his followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed, and all of his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go, for if their purposes or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. His speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin, rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. As our passage begins, the high priest and his associates were, quote-unquote, filled with jealousy, which motivated them to act against the apostles. Now, one might ask, in what way were they jealous of the apostles? After all, in our culture, we tend to think of jealousy in a rather particular way. Usually, that involves someone having something that we don't. New Testament scholar Craig Keener writes this. He says, Envy was common enough in the agonistic honor-shame society of, a of the ancient Mediterranean cities. In other words, in their culture, as the people flocked to the apostles, it diminished the authority and the position of the religious leaders among the people, or at least the religious leaders would have perceived it in this way. And this was further exacerbated by the fact that as the apostles proclaimed the gospel, it had been these religious leaders who rejected Jesus and condemned him to death. And so, uh, as we consider what's taking place here, the religious leaders actually had every reason to be jealous in this way, to see the people turning to the apostles as turning away from them. 
Again, God has revealed the Messiah, Jesus. And so the world's now divided among those who follow behind God's Messiah and those who don't. For the early Christians, there were two major forces of opposition that we read about in the New Testament. One was the leadership of the Jewish people who did not recognize Jesus as the Messiah and who set themselves against the early Christians as they proclaimed the gospel. The other group was the Roman Empire, which stood in many ways as an imposing kingdom in conflict with the kingdom of God. And in our passage today, we see an encounter between the former, the religious leaders, and the early church. In their faithfulness to Christ and the mission that he had entrusted to them, the apostles brought upon themselves an instance of suffering as they butted heads with the religious leaders. Again, they were publicly arrested by the captain of the temple guard on the orders of the religious leaders. And we need to have a little bit of imagination here as uh, the description might be light, but what they went through was a lot more involved than what we could very quickly read in our text. I can only imagine that this would have been a humiliating experience. So think about it for just a moment. Because certainly there were the followers of Christ, there were those who were bringing the sick to be healed, but then for those that were just passing by at the temple, they would automatically assume that the religious leaders were the ones that were in the right, and the apostles must have said or done something worthy of arrest. And so as they were publicly arrested, there had to be some form of humiliation that they experienced. The apostles were once again imprisoned. In fact, Luke makes it a point of stating that they were placed in the public jail. And so this was not some cozy holding area waiting for the Sanhedrin to be convened. Such prisons were often dark pits too shallow for someone to stand upright in. And it is most likely more similar to that uh, the cell in which they found themselves. They were interrogated by the same people who had threatened them previously, the same people who had condemned Jesus to death and turned him over to the Romans. And even though they were spared their lives in this encounter, the religious leaders still had them flogged. And so not only would being whipped in this way be extremely painful, but it would also have been public and shameful as well. And so they endured suffering because of this encounter with the religious leaders. And yet this is what we read in verse 41. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Wow. That is quite the response. You know, it's really hard to imagine suffering in this way, even for Christ, and walking out rejoicing. Or if we could imagine ourselves rejoicing, it would more likely be because we didn't die or because we were allowed to walk out and go home at the end of it all. Why is it so hard for us to imagine taking joy in suffering for Christ as the apostles did here? Why can we not easily imagine ourselves pleased with participating in Christ's suffering as we read earlier from Paul? I have a few suggestions. First, if we're being honest, we do our best to avoid suffering at all costs. We do our best to avoid suffering at all costs. Think about it. We live in a society that values buying things to promote, to promote comfort. We take vacations and we take up hobbies to reduce stress. 
We pop pills to alleviate pain. We save up to provide security. And the list goes on and on and on. We do our best to avoid suffering at all costs. Second, we have never suffered for Christ. I'll say it again. We have never suffered for Christ. Yes, maybe someone once said something mean about you because you were a Christian. Maybe you were passed up for that promotion. Maybe someone devalued your opinion because you were a Christian. Maybe you lost a friend over your faith. These things could have happened, sure. And yet these could hardly be described as instances of suffering. At best, perhaps we could say we've experienced inconveniences for Christ. Now, there are Christians in other parts of the world who are currently experiencing persecution and suffering for Christ. There are missionaries who serve in dangerous areas and do endure suffering for Christ. And there have been Christians in the United States who have been targeted for their faith and have been the victims of violence. Yet the vast majority of us have experienced no such suffering throughout our lives. So why talk about it? Why, why bring out this aspect of this text? I'll give you two reasons. First, just because we have not historically endured suffering for Christ in this country does not mean that we never will. And how we think about participating in the suffering of Christ will determine how we live and what we do in the face of such hardships. Second, if the church lived obediently to Christ's mission with half the passion that the early church had, we would have already experienced such suffering. That may sound like a strong statement there. In fact, I'll say it again. If the church lived obediently to Christ's mission with half the passion of the early church, we would have already experienced such suffering. So why do I say that? Because the gospel continues to stand opposed to the kingdoms of this world and to the prince of this world that has set himself against God. And if we were passionately building the kingdom then the forces that stand to lose the most would rally against us. And yet we don't see that happening. But friends, we ought not to fear suffering. Rather, we should get excited about the potential for what God can accomplish through us if we're willing, despite the costs, even incurring suffering. Look at our Acts passage for today. The apostles were arrested again for doing exactly what they were warned not to do, and what happened as a result. As a result, God sent an angel to release them from prison so that they could go back to proclaiming the gospel, which they were told not to do. They were arrested a third time and faced religious leaders that wanted to put them to death. Even so, God used one of the religious leaders to convince the others to let them go and in fact, the reason that he gave was right on the money. I'm going to read to you from verses 33 to 41. Please follow along. It says, when they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. Then he addressed the Sanhedrin. Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Thutis appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, and all of his followers were dispersed, and it came to nothing. 
After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed, and all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. His speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. So what do we read here? Numerous messianic movements died out when their leader was struck down. But not so with the church. Why? Because Jesus of Nazareth really was the Messiah. The church really does represent those who have been redeemed by him, called out from the world, empowered by the Holy Spirit, and commissioned to be used of him in the building of the kingdom of God. If the apostles and every subsequent generation of Christians had not represented the will of God, the church would not be here today. And so, friends, we've not been called to be casual observers of Jesus. We have not been called to sit on the bleachers and to cheer him on as a fan. We've not been called to celebrate the things that he once did. Rather, we have been called to participate with him. We're known by him and we know him. His death brought us life and our life glorifies him. He is in the Father and we are in him and he is in us. And so as we live our lives for him, we participate with him. Both in the things that we do and in the things that we endure for his name's sake. So what should our lives look like? They should be a lot less about us and a lot more about him. They should be marked with actions that he commanded us to do and less with the actions that we tend to choose to do. They should demonstrate a history of faith-filled risks and a lot less about avoiding suffering and maintaining comfort. Our lives should be moved, focused, directed by and for the gospel and not by all the other motivations that human beings cling to, including those who follow Christ. And when we face opposition, we'll know we're doing something right. And when we face opposition, God's will will win the day. 